Jeff and um, you know we come across people I think nearly every day who need to hear a message like that that there's actually something we can do in our own circumstances as we release praise to the Lord we actually take our mind off that which is in our soul and uh, we allow our spirit to connect with the spirit of the living God and uh, that's a great, a great word of encouragement, Pastor Jeff, and thank you. Thank you for being here to do that. He, uh, he paints all week just so he can come and visit us on Sunday. Isn't that right? That's right. <laughs> no, it's, it's just fabulous to have you, have you with us. So we're going to move into our time of our discussion point, and um, we don't call this a sermon. We call it a discussion point because we hope to um, encourage you to talk about what we've said in the course of our discussion point. And uh, today is actually a fairly special day in the, in the church calendar. I was brought up in, in the Anglican church and on this day, which was called Trinity Sunday, uh, the priest always wore either white or sometimes white with a golden um, stole, which was a bit like a scarf that goes around your neck and hangs on down. And uh, then we move into a season that, that's called ordinary, an ordinary, ordinary Sundays of about uh, 23 Sundays. So the whole purpose of, of Trinity Sunday was actually to celebrate the idea of the Trinity. And uh, the Trinity, of course, is central to the Christian faith. The idea that our God is one God, but is made up of three persons. It's something quite unique to the Christian faith and it's an idea which is pretty difficult to get our minds around. So the, the whole church celebrates the Trinity on Trinity Sunday. Uh, today begins the longest season in the church year. There are 23 Sundays after Trinity and uh, as I mentioned earlier, the colour is white or, or gold. And then for the remainder, it is actually green. And I've just got a little um, chart up there that shows the, the church year. The, the arrow down towards the bottom of the slide points to Trinity Sunday. That's the Sunday after Pentecost Sunday. And then we've got all that uh, green on that chart, which shows the rest of the season of uh, Trinity as far as the traditional church is concerned. It's true that in Pentecostal churches, we, we don't have to follow that, that season, uh, that set of seasons, and um, I, I think God's okay with that. But sometimes I think it's, it's useful for us to reflect on the really important foundational doctrines of the Christian faith. And it is so easy for us to talk about the Trinity there were references to the Trinity in at least two of the songs that we sang this morning. The first song and the third song that were in our worship set this morning actually made reference to the Trinity without using that word. But it's dangerous. It's a dangerous thing to teach on the Trinity uh, because one, it's controversial, and two, we actually run out of images and words in our own vocabulary to really explain what it's all about. It is, for sure, a mystery. 
We must have flat batteries, but that's all right. I've got a big voice. <laughs> we, won't, uh, we won't worry about that at all. So, yeah, it's, um, it's a difficult thing to, to teach about. Uh, one way might be to describe the, the Trinity as a babushka doll. Now, our kids had babushka dolls when, when they were small, and, of course, with a babushka doll, you pull it apart and there's another one inside. And you pull that one apart and there's another one inside. But I actually don't think that that does help us all that much after all. Perhaps this is a slightly better way of representing the idea of the Trinity. Um, we actually profess or confess in the Nicene Creed, which is the fundamental creed of the Christian church, that we believe in a God who's one in three and three in one. In fact, some of the old hymns uh, use that very line. A trinity, of course, is just a contraction of tri and unity. Tri being the, the Greek uh, word for three, and uh, unity, of course, means one. So we're talking about th a three, but a one-ness made up of the three. The trouble is it's impossible to fully comprehend the idea of the Trinity because it's not an idea which is made explicit in either the Old or the New Testament. In fact, some of the critics of the idea of the Trinity say you can't actually find the word anywhere in the Bible. And that's actually true. You can't find the word anywhere in the Bible. This um, quote that I've got up on the slide is from a, a, it's from a book which is probably the best book that explains Pentecostal uh, doctrine. It's by Guy Nuffield and um, Nathaniel Van Cleve. I, I use this book a lot. I've got it on my bookshelf in my office at work. But this is what they say. We do not expect to reduce the Trinity to logical formulas. In other words... The Trinity is something that is difficult to apprehend using our minds, using our intellect. So we do not expect to reduce the Trinity to logical formulas any more than we would attempt to transfer the Pacific Ocean into a teacup. Pretty difficult, right? We do study the doctrine, however, because it is the centre gem of divine revelation. It's foundational to the Christian faith and it's one of the ideas that separates the Christian faith from other faiths. The idea of the Trinity uh, we can find in the New Testament. I'm only actually going to make one reference to, to the New Testament because we could get very theological about this and then perhaps lose the point altogether. But... Theologians would argue that the idea of the Trinity is in many, many different parts of both the New Testament and also the Old Testament. This is just one example that occurs in the book of Acts. So this is an example which is provided right at the beginning of modern church history. So it's right at the beginning of the, uh, the church as we know it today, the Christian church in the book of Acts. And Paul, here he's taking his leave from the elders in Ephesus, the elders of the 
Christian church. And he's actually warning them that there will be teachers that arise in their midst. There'll be others who visit who actually teach heresy. And it's interesting, you know, that within 30 years of the death of Christ, heresy had crept into the church. And one of the reasons why Paul and the other apostles wrote letters to the Christian churches was to actually correct them of dodgy doctrine. And that happened within living memory of Jesus. There were people who walked with Jesus, they knew Jesus, and yet so soon the church was beginning to move away from the foundations that Jesus himself had taught. So Paul is warning the leaders of the church in Ephesus. He says, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. And I've highlighted three words or phrases there that refer to the Godhead, the Holy Spirit and God, and then this expression with his own blood that indicates Jesus Christ. So in this passage here, we have a reference to the notion of the, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And there are many others in the New Testament as well, but that's its first appearance. We also see at least hints of the idea of Trinity in the Old Testament. And uh, some theologians suggest that because back then, back, back in the, uh, the early days of, of, of Israel, societies around Israel actually believed in multiple gods. And uh, some theologians would argue that when you actually look at the whole Bible, right from Genesis right through to Revelation, we actually see a progressive revelation of the Trinity. That it might have been a bit risky in a sense for God to say, hey, listen, guys, I'm three in one and one in three. Because the temptation, I mean, these were people who couldn't wait for Moses to come down off the mountain. They made themselves a golden calf and started to worship the golden calf. So when these people were looking around them, they saw societies that had multiple gods. In fact, we can look around ourselves today and we see societies that have multiple gods. So some theologians argue that the concept of the Trinity wasn't clearly defined in the early days. And therefore you won't find explicit reference in the Old Testament. However, um, scholars tell us that at least some of the names that are given to God in the Old Testament are actually in the plural. So the names Elohim and Adonai are plural. And in fact, the first reference to God, was well, not the first reference, but the reference to God in Genesis 1, uh, 26, I beg your pardon, let me go back. The first reference to God in Genesis is to Elohim. So the, the Hebrew word Elohim is used the first time God appears in the Bible. 
And Elohim is a plural word. So it's, it already indicates that there's something about God which makes God more than just our concept of one. In Genesis 1.26, we read, you know, God said this. He said, let us make man in our image. So there we have in Genesis 1.26 a reference to us. And there's references to us in four or five other places in the Old Testament. When God spoke to Israel uh, through Moses, this is at the time that uh, Moses was bringing the law to the people of Israel. This is what God said through Moses. God spoke to Israel and said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And of course the import of that was that God did not want his people to worship multiple gods. He did not want his people to add this God to all the other gods. Where I work at Christian Heritage College, we, we have international students. And some of those international students do not come from Christian backgrounds. So there are some who are Hindus, uh, there are some, some Buddhists and some, some others in there as well. And when we teach them a Christian worldview, they often find it easy because they just add our God to all of their gods. Right? So they say, no problem, we can accept your God, we can accept this Jesus whom you talk about, we just add him to all the other gods they've already got. But you see, God did not want that to happen. He did not want people to merely add the one true God, the one who created the universe, he did not want them simply to add him to all the other gods. And so he's very explicit. Hear, O Israel. The Lord your God is one Lord. But look at this. We have Jehovah, Lord, our Elohim, our God. Elohim is plural, is one Lord, Jehovah again. So Jehovah is singular, but Elohim is in the plural. And Jehovah was the name that God used when he was speaking to Abraham, to Moses and to others, and was representing himself as the one who saves. Jehovah is the God who saves. So there we have the idea of the Trinity incorporated into the text of the Old Testament. It's a very, very interesting thing. I'm going to show you parts of the Nicene Creed. It might be a bit hard um, for you to read that. But the Nicene Creed was agreed to at the first council of Nicaea in 325 AD. So there had been all sorts of arguments going on in the early church about the nature of God, about whether God the Father, God the Holy Spirit and God Jesus were actually this trinity um, personhood. By the end of that first council, there was agreement among church leaders that the Trinity was in fact a foundation doctrine of Christianity. There was a slight modification to it at the first council of Constantinople in 381 
AD. One of the things that I think is, is highly significant is that there has been virtually no change ever since. So by roughly the end of the uh, 4th century, there was agreement that the Trinity was a foundational concept or a foundational truth of the Christian church, and that has never shifted. Now, it is true that there are some parts of the broader body of Christ that do not hold to the doctrine of the Trinity. There are some that are what we call non-Trinitarian. Uh, there was a, a split in the Assemblies of God Church in the United States from memory, it was just before this. Uh, it was, uh, uh, I think, it was around 1941. So it was during the Second World War, and uh, there was a group who who separated from the mainstream assemblies of God because they rejected ultimately the idea of the Trinity, and uh, so that became the United Pentecostal Church, which uh, exists in the United States, and there are congregations in Australia as well. But by and large the Christian church has continued to accept the agreement made way back in Nicaea in 325 AD. And you can find very slight variations only because of different translations that are um, actually recited every week in, in some of the mainline denominations. So if you go to a Catholic church service, if you go to an Anglican church service, the Nicene Creed, sometimes a slightly different version called the Apostles' Creed, it's actually recited by everybody in the congregation. They do that every Sunday. So they recognise that it's foundational to our faith. Now, I haven't put the whole of the creed up here because the, it just won't fit onto one slide, but I just want to read this as a reminder of what it is that we actually believe as Christians. And this, this is the, the phrases or the sentences that refer directly uh, to the Trinity. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages. And what that means is he existed right back in Genesis 1. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, co-substantial with the Father, through him all things were made. And that actually is a reference to the opening verses of the book of John. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. So this is a confession that people make each Sunday, at least in some of the uh, denominations that are part of the wider body of Christ. Now I want to try to approach the, the idea of the Trinity in two different ways. And these two different ways have been tossed around by theologians now for literally hundreds of years. Now the first idea is that there's a difference between the being of God, which is the oneness of God, 
and the persons of God, which is the three in that oneness. So the being of God is one in three. The persons of God is the three in one. And uh, I can think of no better way of explaining this than to actually let someone else explain it. Can you explain with logic and a rational way the concept of the Trinity? Yes. <laughs> Great. Next question. Um, no, that's a very good question um, because it is uh, so idiosyncratic to the Christian faith and it is extremely important to understand. Um, when I first wrestled with the Trinity, I found it to be very difficult. In fact, I was taught that the Trinity was veiled polytheism. Uh, being raised in a Muslim home, uh, especially with verses from the Quran like Surah Al-Maidah, verse 73. Uh, it made it pretty clear to me that the Trinity is a belief in three. Three gods, not one. And when you, I asked the average Christian to explain what the Trinity was, I usually didn't get anything more than a blank stare. Um, and they would say, well, it's three and one. And I'd say, well, what does that mean? You know, Three in one. It's like, well, that's a shampoo, not God. Tell me, what, what is, what, what do you mean, three in one? And generally speaking, I wouldn't get a response. I'm going to cut to it so that we can have more questions. It, it's important to be able to articulate the doctrine of the Trinity if you believe in it. Uh, if you believe in it, be able to articulate it. Otherwise, you don't really know what you believe in, and you don't actually believe it. You want to believe it, but you don't know what it is. So be able to articulate the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity is the belief that God is one in being and three in person. One in being and three in person. So right off the bat, it's not a contradiction. Because if I were to say it's one in being and three in being, that is a contradiction. It's one in being and three in person. So what's the difference between a being and a person? A being is that quality or that essence or that substance, whatever you want to call it. A being is that which makes you what you are. And a person is that quality or that essence that makes you whom you are. So be a being is that which makes you what you are. A person is that which makes you whom you are. Now, what kind of a being am I? Thanks for the vote of confidence. I appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate that. Human being. I'm a human being. Just so you know. Now, who am I? I am Nabil Qureshi. So, what I am is a human being. That's my being. Who I am is Nabil. That's my person. The two are not the same thing. All of us in here shame, share essentially the same type of being that we are. We are human beings. But none of you share essentially the same kind of person that I am. We're all different persons. So the characteristic of a being is very different from that of a person. God, so I, I am one being with one person. God is one being with three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Is there anything like that on this earth? No. But does that mean God cannot be one being in three persons? Absolutely, it means he can, he can be that if that's what he is. There's no way we can know these deeper things about God apart from revelation. Uh, I do think that there is enough evidence in this world for us to conclude that God exists. 
I think it is the most rational conclusion. It's the most, uh, it covers the most data, it makes the most sense, it fulfills, I think, the criterion of Occam's razor. I think it works. Uh, but how much can we know about God after that point? I think revelation is necessary to know the deeper things about God, and this is one of them, that God is three in one. Uh, it tied in with this concept, then, of Trinity is also the idea of the persons of God. What does it mean for Jesus to be the Son of God? What does it mean for, uh, for God the Father to be the Father? These are different roles in the Trinity, and oftentimes people see the term Son and then impute inferiority to the Son. Uh, in a sense, that's accurate to do. So let me put together some Bible verses for you, because especially when I debate Muslims or dialogue with them, these issues come to the fore, as they did with me when I was a Muslim. Some people will say that Jesus says things like in the Gospel of John, he says, the Father is greater than I. How is it possible that Jesus is God when he says, the Father is greater than I? And I would answer that question by saying, in, in our organization, Uncle Rabbi Zacharias, he is the CEO of the organization. He is greater than I am. I'm at the bottom of the totem pole, he's at the top. And right now I'm earning brownie points. So, he is greater than I am, but he is a human, just as I am. So his being is essentially equal to mine. He's a human being, I'm a human being, we're equal in that sense, but his role is greater than mine. And I'm inferior in that sense. So when Jesus says the Father is greater than I, the being is equal, the role is different. And this is how the Trinity all comes into focus when we start reading the scripture. One last thing I want to close with is some people will say to me, but Nabil, the Trinity is not present in the Old Testament. This is something new that Christians came up with. I don't think so. I think when you start reading the Old Testament a bit more carefully, now through the lens of clarity that we have from the New Testament, you start seeing it in the Old Testament. And people might say, where? Where did we start seeing the Trinity in the Old Testament? I see it in the first verse of the first chapter of the first book of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, let's take that back into the Hebrew. It says, Elohim created. Elohim is the plural of God. It's gods. In the beginning, gods but then the word created treats that word as if it's singular. In the beginning, God's created as if it were singular. So right there at the very beginning of the Old Testament, you have plurality and singularity in the Godhead. You see it again in the very same chapter where it says, we, God refers to himself as we, plurally. How can God refer to himself plurally? And some people say, well, you know, the Queen of England does that. The plural of majesty was not used in Hebrew at that time. It was not convention. And then also when God says, we will create man in our image, male and female, we will make men. Male and female, in his image, and then it goes to plurality once again. Multiple times, plurality in the Godhead. I'll end by saying this. In the Shema, this is the, this is the statement that Jews would often recite twice a day. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Elohenu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Okay, very profound proclamation. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. In a world of polytheism, it's very profound. But that word one, echad, is not used to describe a singularity. It's used to describe something like a cluster of grapes. You would refer to the entire cluster as one cluster. That's what the word echad is. 
So even in the Shema, we have shades of the Trinity. It's just clarified through the person of Jesus, and it explains so much of what happens in the Gospel. And I think, uh, there's a lot more we could discuss here, but I think it's one of the most beautiful teachings about the depth of God's character and how he is unlike anything in this movie. Oh, that's good. So I think he probably did a better job than I could have. <laughs> he, um, he's part of Ravi Zacharias uh, Ministries. Uh, Ravi Zacharias is perhaps one of the world's best apologists. Um, he's very, very good. I, I had the very great privilege of moderating uh, a debate between Ravi Zacharias, uh, a Muslim and a secular humanist some years ago. There were about 1,200 people in the audience. And quite frankly, Ravi was the only person who had satisfactory answers to the most important questions that we ask in life. The Muslim was a lovely man, an imam from, uh, from Brisbane, but um, in answer to the question about, well, how do we know we're going to heaven? He had to say, we don't. We can only hope that Allah, when he weighs up the good things we do against the bad, will judge that we did more good than we did bad. So you don't know you're going to heaven until you either get there or you don't. The humanist was a lovely lady too, a really beautiful lady. I'd love to have her around for a cup of coffee one day. But there's no substance because they have nowhere from which to draw their answers to, the life, to life. And, and most of them actually, without knowing it, draw on Christian heritage. But Ravi, he had answers for every question of life. It was um, a fabulous experience, a bit scary, I might add, with... 12 or 1,500 people in the audience. So there's, there's one way of, of understanding the Trinity. It's one way at least of approaching the idea of the Trinity. Now, there is another way that theologians have used as well, and um, it was alluded to to some extent in the, that little presentation. But C.S. Lewis is one whose writing along this line is uh, quite popular. More recently, Tim Keller, hands up all of those who have heard of Tim Keller, very popular writer. He's written a lot, well, well, well with some people anyway. He's a Presbyterian minister in the United States. He's actually retired from active, minister, well, active uh, leadership of a church. But he's written a lot of books, and he's written a couple of books on the concept of God. He talks about this notion of uh, the Trinity as a dance, and uh, the theologians use this lovely term, which you might want to impress your family with, around the dinner table tonight, uh, perichoresis. And uh, it comes from two words, two Greek words, peri, meaning around, and korien, meaning to give way or to make room. And I have a, a long quote here, which might help us to understand what this idea of the Trinity as a dance is all about. The theologians in the early church tried to describe the wonderful reality that we call Trinity. If any of you have ever been to a Greek wedding, you might have seen a movie, you may have seen their distinctive way of dancing. It's called perichoresis. There are not two dancers, but at least three. They start to go in circles, weaving in and out in this very beautiful pattern of motion. They start to go faster and faster and faster, all the while staying in perfect rhythm and in sync with each other. 
Eventually, they're dancing so quickly, yet so effortlessly, that as you look back at them, it just becomes a blur. Their individual identities are part of a larger dance. The early church fathers and mothers looked at that dance and said, that's what the Trinity is like. It's a harmonious set of relationships in which there is mutual giving and receiving, and this relationship is called love. So there's another way of thinking of, of the Trinity. And it's as if each partner in this dance is making way for the other, is serving the other, is wanting to submit to the other. And that's a picture of the way in which our God, Jesus and the Holy Spirit actually serve one another. So there's two, two pictures, if you like, two images, two ways of approaching this idea of the Trinity. One, that there's a difference between being and persons, so that God is a being, but the being is in fact three persons, or the idea of a dance, a dance in which the three partners so intermingle, as it were, that they are only seen as one entity. Well, that's probably about the worst we're ever going to have in terms of the theological uh, interpretation. But I do think it's pretty important that every now and then we do perhaps move away from the standard approach we take to our discussion points and focus on some of the things that are absolutely foundational to our Christian beliefs. If it weren't for the Trinity, we would be so much like so many other uh, religions. Having said that, I think it is probably time we took, um, took our leave of the formal part of our service this morning and enjoy a little bit of community time. So thank you so much, everybody, for being here. I think we've got Tim Tams, we've got chocolates, I think we might have cheese and crackers. We've even got some fresh